0: everybody. This is Matt. And I just wanted to quickly let you know this is our second of three recap episodes that we recorded at the American College of Physicians Internal Medicine Meeting 2019 in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. What we did for these, we got our whole big team together. There were 10 of us there. We all pulled together our favorite pearls. We invited a special guest for each episode. And we just kind of let it roll. These episodes are not very heavily produced. Very little editing. They don't have show notes along with them. We do try to cite the source or at least the session from ACP where we got these facts from. But we will be back in about two weeks' time with our normal fully produced episodes. Some things we have coming at down the pike are BPH, Hefpef, heart disease in women, anaphylaxis, DVT, lots of great content. So please enjoy this episode, and we will see you back in about two weeks' time with our traditional full-length episodes.
1: This podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that views, and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted as official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like, more and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to you. Screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right.
0: Welcome back to the curbside. Hi, Matt. How you doing? We've taken Stuart's micro- microphone away literally. He's actually he's sharing one with me cuz we have a huge team recording here. Most of us are sleep deprived and very delirious. Paul and I learned today that that is not good for you.
2: Right, we're getting dumber and meaner and fatter <laughs> just as the day progresses. And
0: yeah. And dying. And dying. Yeah. So we're we're at ACP Uh, As you can hear, I'm with Stuart and Paul, Uh, Stuart's yelling from a mountaintop, and with us is our good friend, Aaliyah Chisti, returning from, I think it's been like 120 episodes-ish, maybe 130.
2: (laughs) Just, yeah, 120.
0: Hi, guys. Happy to be here. (laughs) Thank you thank you for taking some time out of like your busy conference schedule to come and uh I don't know do whatever this insanity is that we're about to do here. <laughs> I get to hang out with you guys
3: this is the best.
0: <laughs> yes. All right. So we have some people that are actually going to go do more learning, so we should uh we should get right to it. But maybe Paul can tell them what we're going to Somewhat, somewhat. What we're going to do today?
2: Sure. Rather than the usual experts, it's us, which is fine because we're smart people. So we're <laughs> we're just going to recap a lot of the clinical pearls and sort of high points from the conference sessions that we attended here at ACPS 2019 uh, conference. So a bunch of us went to a bunch of things. We have a bunch of knowledge bombs to drop on you. That sounds awful.
0: I, I think we should just go. Um, well, why don't we start with Aaliyah? Why don't you Why don't you start with a pearl? If you're you look like you're not ready, so I can call. And, <laughs> we got a whole team here.
2: Just palpable uh, panic.
0: How would you go next? Let's, right. let's bring Molly up. Let's bring Molly up here. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> Molly has a ton of good stuff.
4: All right. Happy to join. Okay. So uh, I attended a few lectures today, they were all great. Um, so I'm going to start with one um, Some Pearls from New Drugs with Dr. Gerald Smatana. Uh, so the first one is there's a new medication that is approved this year, so we'll be seeing it more coming out for influenza. It's called Baloxivir. Uh, it's pretty similar clinically to Oseltamivir, so it reduces the duration of flu by about one day. Uh, it's a little bit different in that it's a novel antiviral mechanism, so we have seen some... Resistance coming out to Oseltamivir, so perhaps this will become more common. It's just a single dose, so a little more convenient for patients to take. It is more expensive, of course, $157 as compared to about $50 for a course of Oseltamivir. So keep an eye out for Beloxivir this fall. And then the other new medication we're having some trouble seeing, uh Solramfetil.
5: Solramfetil. <laughs> Let's hear Sol that. Rye Thank you, Google. Excellent.
4: <laughs> All right, we got some Solriamphetol. So, this one is approved for daytime sleepiness associated with obstructive sleep apnea. So, we know that about 10% of patients with obstructive sleep apnea who are as optimally treated as they can be with CPAP are still symptomatic, and some patients just can't tolerate CPAP. Um, So, uh, women tend to be more symptomatic, younger patients, and then those with general poor health or depression tend to have continued symptoms with OSA. And so, this medication is a novel reuptake inhibitor of dopamine and norepinephrine. Um, It's possibly a little bit more effective than our currently approved medication for sleepiness with OSA, which is modafinil and armodafinil. Um, it is not quite as stimulating, but does still have some concern about stimulant potential. So it will be a controlled medication.
0: Can Can I ask Molly or anyone else, are you using modafinil? Personally?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't use a lot of modafinil for my patients. But um, if they have concomitant sleep apnea and depression, I would use Welbutrin, which essentially has the same... You know, it's a little bit of a more of a dirtier medication than Solriamfetol, but um, does have some of the, the same adverse events. I mean, it's stimulating. It's actually used off-label for ADHD as well. So I wonder, I, I wonder if it's more, is it more effective than, say, Welbutrin or, I'm sorry, not well, Welbutrin, Bupropion?
4: Bupropion is not approved. Ilbutrin. Yeah. sleepiness <laughs> with, <laughs> with OSA. This is not the same issues. Because,
1: sorry, this medication will have the same issues because it's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. So all the ill-butrin issues with bupropion are probably going to be the same for sulriamphetil.
4: We will have to see. (laughs) All right. Um, The next talk I wanted to highlight a few pearls from was drug allergies with Dr. John Kelso. Uh, So he highlighted the fact that only 5 to 10% of patients who say they have a penicillin allergy are actually truly penicillin allergic. So about 95% of our pen allergic patients can actually take penicillin safely. And we know that being uh, labeled with a penicillin allergy leads patients to be treated with um, less effective or antibiotics that have more side effects. So this is important to think about.
0: Yeah, that was no, go ahead. that was the prior episode. Netta, Netta Freja was telling us that she basically like there, there's increased MRSA, increased C. diff risk if you are labeled with a penicillin allergy. And she herself was mis- probably mislabeled and was like getting tested. So Get yourself tested. <laughs> so we can just test other antibiotics, right?
4: We cannot test other antibiotics, yeah. So if you, if you have a patient who has a good story for a penicillin allergy, you can send them to an allergist for a skin prick test. We don't really have reliable testing for um, other antibiotics. So if the skin prick is positive for other antibiotics, that's somewhat reliable that they probably do have an allergy. But if it's negative, it's not reliable. So it's not often done. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that 98% of truly penicillin allergic patients can tolerate cephalosporins. So, especially if someone has a distant history of a kind of a mild reaction, so maybe just hives, we can feel very safe giving an oral cephalosporin. We might want to be a little careful if someone had a recent severe penicillin allergy and would probably want to avoid IV cephalosporins. And then from Dr. Rebecca Hutchinson, uh, she gave a talk on palliative care in non-cancer patients. She brought up the fact that we spend a lot of time in medical education talking about diagnosis and less on prognostication. And it can be really important for our patients to be able to understand their prognosis and for us to be able to recommend treatments if we understand kind of what their trajectory is. So just something to think about we can uh, try to learn more about.
0: Yeah, so the Jerry Powell did an episode on that, um, which was, I don't know if we'll have show notes for this, but look at the Jerry Powell They're podcast. Be show notes for this. There won't be <laughs> show notes, common. I can tell you that. Yeah, there, we're going to release this pretty quickly, so there won't be show notes, but Jerry Powell did a podcast on prognostication, so you can look that up.
4: Cool. And then um, a treatment that's often recommended by palliative care doctors for um, dyspnea is to apply uh, have a fan blowing air in your face. Um, I'm sorry, we're going to say apply a fan. You're going
2: to say apply a fan. (laughs) Um,
4: And so uh, there actually was a randomized control trial published on this in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management just this past year. And it showed that blowing air in your face does actually help reduce dyspnea more than blowing it on your legs. And then another study she highlighted was the one that we have discussed in a prior Hot Cakes episode from the um, Journal of Emergent, I'm sorry, Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018 about isopropyl isopropyl alcohol smelling to reduce nausea. So basically just an alcohol pad under the nose helps reduce nausea within 30
0: minutes. Yeah, I've seen patients uh, in, in, I think it was the PACU, they were putting them underneath the nasal cannula, like one on each side. I was like, oh, that's an interesting... Delivery system for that.
4: I guess that works. Yeah. 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 Well, those are all mine. I don't know who's up next.
0: Those are fantastic. Thank you, Molly. I think, I think Aliyah's up next. If it's, uh, are you ready now?
4: I feel ready. Thank you for that.
0: (laughs) Okay. Let's go.
3: Um, So, I'd actually like to share a couple of clinical pearls I, I learned from the clinical pearls infectious disease and oncology session. It was moderated by John Bundrick, and um, our two panelists were Randall Edson and Andrea Weiner-Hendrickson. And um, one of the cases that I really learned about that I. Realize that maybe I've seen this and didn't really recognize it when I saw it in the hospitals. A case around a 68-year-old woman. She'd had uh, multiple syncopal episodes, um, was admitted with a femoral fracture, and has a history of um, squamous cell carcinoma of the neck, status post-chemo, and radiation, and that, you know, there were some concerns around maybe she had some VTACs, some abnormal electrolytes. And this was actually thought to be a side effect of her chemotherapy, that she had something called renal magnesium wasting. And that can be caused from multiple chemotherapy agents, including platins, iphosphamides, and even the monoclonal antibodies, which are some of our newer agents. And that it can cause direct damage to the renal tubules, And so you'll see a lot of hypokalemia and also some profound hypomagnesemia. And that, that can actually be a reason why they're having their, you know, electrolyte disturbances, and then maybe their syncope. And so that was to me is something that I yeah, should be paying attention
0: to. That's great. To. I, I bet you I've missed cases of that too. I'm sure I have. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of like asking patients who have had uh, radiation for breast cancer about like thinking of them as higher risk for heart disease, and then uh, for chemo, for neuro, uh, neuropathy, taking that history as well. I always, well, until we learned that on the show way back when I, I wasn't routinely asking that. So that's great to ask about. Stuart looks like he's like furiously looking things up here. So uh, let me know if you find anything that you want to say. Okay. Keep going, Aaliyah. Um.
3: The uh, other question, other interesting pearl that I learned and would actually like to discuss with all of you guys was um, there seemed to be a little bit of discrepancy between the um, ID cases that were presented in the clinical curl, p- pearls this morning and then when I saw Dr. Gluckman um, with his curbside ID cases that, this afternoon about around asymptomatic bacteria and... I mean, we know the only people that you treat with asymptomatic bacteria are pregnant women. And then something else that I just learned is, of course, people who are going to get some type of urologic procedure like a cystoscopy. But there's some um, data out there that patients who might be going for an orthopedic procedure, and if they get a UA and it's positive, what do you do with that? And so the case this morning was like, do not treat them. Just don't do it. And then Dr. Gluckman was like, well you have to pick your battles. And so, <laughs> you know, I think that that's interesting. The study he reviewed showed that um, that you can treat the patients with the asymptomatic bacteria prior to their orthopedic procedure, but the and if they have some type of complication of their joint, that the bacteria that grows from the joint are the, is actually not the same as the urinary organism that was treated.
1: Now, aren't all patients going for an orthopedic procedure, at least at our institution, they're all getting uh cefazolin anyways right so it's like sure. why <laughs> even you know <laughs> are you just going to change that to something else at that point or are you going to keep it on cefazolin and just say eh hey, whatever sure
2: go to the fluoroquinolone i think uh, it's the right choice
0: yeah i, I mean the dr Fanukin, who was on our show talking about asymptomatic bacteria, the the study he he wrote this article Requiem uh yeah i can't remember the it's requeem for a heavyweight and it's about urinary tract infections, uh, in quote, air quotes, as he likes to say it. But the, the, for asymptomatic bacteria, when they looked at those patients in the orthopedic study, it, it was felt to be, the conclusion was it's a marker of morbidity. So it's kind of like low albumin. There's not that much you can do about it. Um, it's just a marker of morbidity. And those patients are going to have worse outcomes, one of which is probably prosthetic joint infection. Aaliyah, anything else? I love to share the stage with other people or the, the, table. Okay. the table. Let's bring in, let's bring in, the uh, the, let's bring in Justin Lieberk. Justin, I think you need to, I think that Mike, yeah. that Mike is for your six foot two stature. That's I don't like think a that defensive mic- <laughs> you got a of stance. It's
6: great. Um, I'll work one in by the end. Uh, uh, you guys didn't like my fun guy joke and that was, that was kind of the best I had. Um, but so the first one I went to was, uh, things we do for no reason. Uh, uh, talk essentially by Lenny Feldman, Dr. Lenny Feldman. He's been on the show before. Um, and it was, it was basically performance. It was standing room only in one of the bigger rooms. There's a lot of laughs, a lot of gasps, a lot of, uh, a lot of emotional roller coasters uh, as he went through some of the evidence. Um, we weren't into him too much, but some of the brief ones was essentially that there's good evidence that we don't need to be treating hypertensive urgency. We did an episode on that previously. Um, no need to ever use pre and no need to ever use ammonia. Uh, he talked a little bit about some other things, but uh, those were kind of the big, big takeaways, I think, that are easiest to summarize. Sure, you want to come, come join me for, we'll, we'll talk about some of the GI updates, because we have, we, there was a lot of, a lot of great, uh, I'll turn over is the C last for, for you. No, this is going to be perfect. Okay. This is going to be, this is going to be our shtick. Um, so first, uh, there was a great, uh, great review of the 2017 American College of Gastroenterology uh, treatment plan for generalized dyspepsia or epigastric pain for about a month. Basically, the three-step process, if you are over the age of 60 and have dyspepsia, you should get immediate EGD to rule out gastric cancer. If you are under the age of 60, uh, you should immediately get an H. pylori stool antigen or breath test, uh, just because the number needed to treat for symptomatic H. pylori infection was about seven. Stuart, you like number needed to treat, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got a
5: number needed to treat for you. A number needed to treat of two for duodenal ulcers. That's
6: right. If you have a duodenal ulcer, number needed to treat is two. Gastric ulcer number needed to treat is three, so very low number needed to treat. Uh, If you treat the H. pylori or if the H. pylori test is negative, uh, you can then go to the next step in the algorithm, which is just an anti-secretory treatment, um, which there's some evidence that H2 blockers are equally uh, effective as PPI. So you just go to an H2 blocker.
0: I wanted to clarify, the dyspepsia over 60, regardless of if they've been treated with a PPI, I, I feel like I was taught initially, like, treat with PPI for six weeks, if it doesn't get better, then you would proceed to EGD, but you're saying, they were saying proceed, do not pass go, do not collect, just go straight to the...
6: That was yeah. That was that was the big takeaway. Okay. um
0: Yeah. That was,
6: and that was what I put in the infographic that's on Twitter today. So now it's <laughs> it's kind of finalized now and cemented. It's, now oh, it's
0: canon. Uh, but this line. is
6: great. If that's wrong, someone can write in, and we can uh, have kind of a crowd this publication thing.
7: peer review. Yeah. This is what it's all this about. This is what
5: we live for. This is
6: what it's all about. Uh, Thank you, Matt. On the topic of H. pylori, uh, there was also some discussion on the Houston consensus. Um, Three of the presenters were all from Texas and then presented on the Houston consensus. So a big uh, Texas presentation in the GI talk. What what was the Houston consensus? The Houston consensus was a Delphi study where they looked at a lot of GI experts on who to treat, how to treat, and when to treat. Uh, But only from Texas. Uh, You had to be from Texas to be included. No, it was experts from all over the nation. Um, uh, uh, It was a really big study. So who should be treated? All patients with ulcers or uninvestigated uh, dyspepsia. But also there was a grade B recommendation for any patient with ITP, uh, uh, immunothrombocytic purpura. Nope. Immune thrombocytopenic purpura. Uh, because it's associated with A. pylori infection, so there's a strong agreement to treat. Um, and then any first-generation immigrants from high-prevalent areas or those who have families with active infection should also be treated uh, or also tested. Tested is through biopsy, urea breath test, or stool antigen. It is okay to be on an H2 blocker or an acid, but if you're on a PPI, thank you, Stuart, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, PPI has to be stopped four weeks before any testing. Um, how about celiac disease? And do you guys have any any questions, Matt? I think I, I would
0: like to know how how much bread can I eat if I have celiac disease. Phenomenal question.
5: I got you. I got you. <laughs> I got you. You. <laughs> Very interesting. Even one fortieth of a slice of bread can show histological evidence of celiac. So if it, you have celiac or if you have a patient of celiac, um, it is pretty hard to get away with that. Whether that correlates to symptom, if one fourth, one fortieth of a slice of bread correlates to symptoms, I don't know. But histologically, it's been proven. Justin, why don't we do like a myth busting? I love it. I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to tell me yes I'm or gonna no. I'm going to bust
6: it or let it go. Yeah. Beautiful. Here How we about go. that?
5: Okay. So... Do patients with celiac have to be European?
6: Phenomenal question. It is not. It is a global disease, that the global burden of disease is across all countries.
5: Okay, yeah. Particularly being Indian, uh, actually the case that they used was of an Indian person, and um, Mm. they uh, had a wonderful map of the world, and relatively the higher prevalence is actually northern uh, Indians, he was saying.
6: Yeah, unbelievable. Fun fact. That's a great pearl. All
5: right. Justin, yes. Do you think patients with celiac have to are usually underweight?
6: Uh, phenomenal question. Uh, they don't always have to be underweight. They can be of any weight Whoa. and still have celiac disease, right? Yeah. So amazing. So
5: not uh, if your overweight patient has anemia or other symptoms, do not overlook celiac as a as a possible cause.
6: That's right. Um,
5: Justin, do you think that patients with celiac is more of a pediatric thing and adults? can't newly present with it.
6: Sure, great question. Uh, it can come in pediatrics, but you can also have what's called the adolescent honeymoon period where it will go away and you have no symptoms. And then it can represent later on in life. So awesome. an older person can also be have their first presentation of celiac disease.
5: What are the other myths to bust? Those are my three big ones.
6: How about uh, if a patient just starts eating a gluten-free diet um, and still seems to have symptoms, does that mean that they don't have celiac disease?
5: No, because there's 10% of patients with celiac who are quote-unquote non-respondent. So be on the lookout for that.
6: Amazing, cool. A lot of people have Celiac disease. A prevalence of one percent, which uh, Matt, as you'll recall, is the same as Ankylosing Spondylitis, and uh, most patients don't know that they have it. So there's another thing to add to your list. I you. wonder let's...
5: if every day we could talk, we could drop in Ankylosing Spondylitis.
6: It's going to be the new jump rope. <laughs> I think that's all we have for you today, guys. Uh, any other? Uh...
0: Okay, let's uh, let's bring up Emmy. And uh, get some, get some more pearls here. You have ID pearls for us today, Emmy.
8: Yes, yes. Readjusting the mic. I'm I'm not six <laughs> feet here. Um, so first up, I went to an ID, uh, update from George Karam from LSU. He shared the Merino trial, which was a JAMA trial back in, uh, 2018. It was patients who came in with E. coli or Klebsiella resistant to third generation cephalosporin. So these are your ESBLs and were randomized to get either Piptazo or, um, Mirapenem. Now, the 30 day mortality rate was 12% in the Piptazo group and 4% in the Mirapenem group. Um, a lot of these people up front, they weren't sure what they had going in. So there was, um, they, there was some cross in the trial between the two. But it does kind of have us thinking when a really sick patient comes in, we classically use our, our VANC Piptazo, but maybe we should be reaching for the carbapenems instead.
0: Did they, did they caveat this is with people who have a known risk for ESBL or that people that people just anyone that's super anyone sick? Anyone
8: who was diagnosed with ESBL. Yeah. So they previously had uh, gotten different medications before the randomization. But even after the randomization and moving forward, the effect was still pretty different. Did
1: they mention what the attributable risk was for seizure?
8: No, they did not go into that. Yeah. I will say uh, they did also check at 30 days for C. diff and resistance, and there was no difference between the groups. So for those of you uh, worrying about using a stronger antibiotic, there wasn't much risk at 30 days. So something to think about. Next up is fluoroquinolones. I know those are Matt's favorite drugs to yeah, use. Yeah,
0: they're safe. <laughs> yeah, uh, we totally love them. Safe, First yeah. line for uh, rhin- rhinitis, cystitis, whatever. Bronchitis, all of it, all <laughs> the itises.
8: Yeah, so they went uh, uh, through some... Uh, FDA updates in the past year, in July, they talked about dysglycemia, which is both hypo or hyperglycemia, and also mental health side effects. And these go as far as people having delirium or coma. So not just mild there. And then also uh, in December, the FDA said that they are risk for the rare but serious complication of aortic dissection. So something Smalls. to yes be aware for your Marfan's patients. I don't and, quite know what to do with that, Paul.
2: Uh, as you're lying there on the ground after your Achilles tendon's ruptured and you're like, "No, nah, I'm having crushing chest pain that's radiating to my back." Like this. Ouch.
8: Yes. Um, also from the ID talk, the Partner 2 trial aspect uh, abstract is out, and the bottom line of that is U equals U. Now do you guys know U equals U? Yes.
0: I do because the uh equals untransmissible
8: yes yeah also known as treatment as prevention
0: and Paul Sachs has written about this on his HIV and ID observations blog which uh, is yeah is great and that's that's been that can't be said enough I think
8: yep yeah. so get those viral loads down what happened in a study with MSM this was the first major, study in MSM populations where there were 75,000 condomless sex acts. There was no transmission of linked HIV, meaning that there was HIV transmission within the group, but no were uh, phylogenetically related HIV cases.
0: Are you saying it was infidelity? Is that... Uh, I No comment. Okay. It just wasn't the same virus their partner had. That's yes. The, okay,
8: got it. That is correct. Um, and then we went to an anaphylaxis talk today and actually had a great recording session with Dr. Olajumoke Faduba from UPenn. Um, we took a great session away, but I wanted to share a few more pearls that we didn't make it into the session. Um, she did mention about the seafood and iodinated contrast, um reaction, and that is not a thing. Now, the reaction to seafood is to the tropomycin protein, not to the iodine in contrast. So there is no relationship between the two. Now, the caveat is people who are allergic to seafood are more likely to be allergic to anything, ergo more likely to have a contrast reaction, but there's no special um, things that you have to do for your seafood allergy patients needing a CAT
0: scan. Did and she, she mention if the seafood was an IgE-mediated or a non-IgE-mediated? I,
8: I believe so. She didn't mention it, but I believe that's IgE, whereas the contrast is a non-IgE-mediated reaction. She was saying with the
1: seafood, you get itching as well. So you could contain yeast involvement plus pruritus.
8: Yep, Those are IgE reactions, sounds like.
2: <laughs> Could be. Story checks out. Yeah. Strong work, everyone. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, all around.
8: Yes. Yeah, so no, another thing that we can feel good about is the multiple studies on eggs and flu shots. So there is, and the CDC came out strong on this saying that you can give any flu shot to anyone with an egg allergy. So Fantastic. no need for monitoring. And when people do have anaphylaxis, lay them supine and your pregnant patients should be on the left side and that's to relieve the pressure off the IVC just another thing to think about
0: yeah i like how and she she was telling them that they should an IM injection on the lateral thigh through the pants is the correct way to give the epi um don't mess don't don't take time trying to pull down <laughs> pull down your trousers to uh, give yeah just go straight through and no pulp fiction style administration and it, yeah the, the the IM the IM is better and and you hold it in for 10 seconds um because there's different formulations, but if you hold it in for ten seconds, that that should get all the medicine. And uh, there's plenty more in that. We're gonna release a full episode on that. So, all right,
3: like you know, from the pen when you put yeah. in insulin, you can't hold it in for
2: ten seconds. Hold it in. I
0: did not know that. I yes. that yeah. I I don't counsel patients on giving insulin. I probably should know that. Just
2: give them the pen. Go with God. Good luck.
0: <laughs> well, I you know other people
2: <laughs> see you back when your diabetes is better. Yeah. <laughs>
0: no. Yeah. Okay. I'm a terrible doctor, uh, Cyrus the Younger. Let's let's get you up here, uh, Cyrus. I think you're going to need to adjust the mic. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Your frame is slightly bigger than uh, than Emmy Okamoto, so
7: yes, unless she's very very dense, in which case she maybe maybe has a pound or two on me. Okay. Very unlikely. Um, so. Um, The session that I kind of went to and wanted to talk about was actually uh, given by Dr. Uh, David Winchester out of the University of Florida uh, College of Medicine. He mentioned that the negative predictive value for a coronary CT is 99%, uh, which I think is awesome but then the positive predictive value is not so great it's like maybe 50 to 70 percent um and the, the the reason being is that we can't really uh in the current with the current coronary cts can't really assess severity of that lesion very well so you may be able to kind of say yes there is something but then the next next step is you send them for for left heart cath and so um, kind of tipped his, his cap a little bit uh, towards the end of that statement by, by turning us on to the fact that over in California, there is a research group that is kind of looking at their coronary CTs and uh, running them through this kind of supercomputer-driven algorithm, and they're actually able to look at that stenotic lesion and calculate uh, an estimated fractional flow reserve, or FFR. Based upon the kind of uh, contrast hemodynamics uh, in that uh, at that that stenotic point, so super cool, uh, great way to get some data without actually um, you know inserting a catheter. Hey, um, Cyrus, I have a, have a question for you. Yes, Stuart.
1: So, why is it difficult for some professors to get hired?
7: Oh boy. Huh. Um, well, Stuart, I haven't the faintest. Because they have a high tenure risk score. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. High tenure risk score. Very good. Um, Uh, I I think I still
0: remember my comment. I think I still remember my comment. (laughs) Well done, Stuart. The, the, that is really exciting. The fractional flow reserve, at least in concept, it's I think it's really exciting. So the fractional fl- flow reserve is like in, in an actual coronary angiography where they sort of try to measure the flow across a lesion and determine if it's uh, significant hemodynamically, right? And, exactly, right. And right. if it's likely to be caught. So if they could do this non-invasively, I mean, that's almost like the, I don't know what you would call it, holy grail of, uh, <laughs> it would, of non-invasive. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure if you're an interventionalist, uh, you're not going to love that.
1: Problem with that is that uh, if we were to adopt that, then the meme that says that the outside hospital can perform casts for everything would no longer apply. And That's a great meme too. I know so it that is. would
7: really stink. Yeah, it would. Um, but I imagine patients would probably benefit more than that than the uh, than the death of that meme would kind of impact the general community. So probably okay. Um, but I think you know it 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 definitely Matt, your point's very uh, very important because I think it. It, um, you know, puts another tool in the toolbox for us as internists. Um, and and really, then you're kind of looking at, okay, if they go to cath, it's for PCI. It's not for, you know, more diagnostics that may result in, well, just uptri-treat your goal-directed medical therapy.
2: I'm kind of surprised, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, that Treya hasn't bum-rushed the mic yet. Because uh, we actually just had a great recording today. Because I feel like we're working to the assumption that all... So I think we're using the term CAD, and we're talking about sort of obstructive CAD. And actually, I think it's sort of been reclassified as sort of ischemic heart disease. Sure, and, not, yeah. and in many women and some men, not all of ACS is actually caused by obstructive um, obstructive coronary artery disease. So it's I, I, I'm, I'm less wildly enthusiastic about the, the FFR, because I'm not sure it's going to be entirely that helpful it's a great in point. that specific case.
0: Right. So I probably as things get more specialized, we're going to be like, it's going to be more complicated more Thank out,
2: God yeah. finally, not this <laughs> boring God. cardiology stuff,
0: Cyrus, what else do you have for us? I think you had something you had an app and uh, maybe some radiation stuff.
7: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so there uh, so, Dr. Winchester also mentioned an app. Um, that can be used. So it's uh, if you go on to the Google Play Store or the App Store on your uh, iPhone, and you search uh, "multimodality AUC" um, for appropriate use criteria, you can. Uh, there's an app there that basically um, it, it kind of takes you through the thought process of determining. What are and are not appropriate stress testing uh, options for a particular patient, and so it kind of tells you this one's a great test, this one's maybe not so great, and this one you shouldn't do. Um, so I think it's a great thing. Like if you're sitting down with a patient who's kind of telling you a little bit uh, of a story that's that's concerning, and you're thinking maybe you do need it to stress this person, it's a great way to have the options, and then even kind of turn it around and show it as a visual aid to your patient, be like, so so this is why I'm not. I mean, I know you heard about the heart the heart cath, but this is why I'm not sending you for a heart cath. You know, it's really not something that. It's recommended it's expensive it has risks etc. um so I think it could be a really powerful tool um and it, it's produced by uh, Astolus, which is a, a pharmaceutical company um but I think the the data I believe draws from um some literature out of the ACC AHA on, um, on on
0: on uh, stress testing so this I don't know about you Paul, but this is making me nervous about all the uh the the data is just gonna drive everything and it's uh you know it's all smarter than we are and we're just gonna <laughs> You know, well, are we, a, is this an existential crisis uh, no, no, it's fine. for doctors? We'll no. have guidelines. <laughs> we'll
2: have guidelines. We'll have, no, I, the, part of the talk was guidelines actually narrow some of the um, the gender bias that's uh, inherent in sort of treating CAD between men and women. And also that there's this great quote about guidelines make good doctors great doctors. So with this, that's what guidelines exist for. So I, I think that they'll, we'll have some sort of guidance for not to be out there. And then we can always refer, I guess we have to.
7: Yeah, for sure. Um, I do, yeah, a couple other questions. Uh, quick, relatively quick ones. Um, so, uh, one thing that Dr. Winchester talked about is kind of interesting, the dichotomy between the UK guidelines for stress testing and then the American guidelines, or like the ACC AHA guidelines. So in the ACC AHA guidelines, there kind of still is a, uh, a, a patient population for whom a, a plain old, uh, exercise stress test would be recommended. And those are going to be like your, your kind of younger, lower risk, interpretable EKG, um, folks that, um, you know, uh, Maybe uh, maybe coming in with some chest pain that you're not particularly convinced about. Um, so so uh, that being said, in the European guidelines like the UK NICE guidelines, um, there um, they don't have uh, really any stress modality that they support uh, where there is no imaging associated with it. So uh, you see a lot more um, kind of stress echo, um, the myocardial perfusion studies, um, whether it's uh, pharmacologic stress or actual you know treadmill stress. Um, so so that's kind of like I thought that was interesting and um, there was maybe some thought that um, collectively we're going to move in that direction just because the imaging can be very useful. Um, and there are obviously limitations with
0: without having the imaging, um, but, but more to come on that. But the, yeah, the whole nuclear medicine stress testing is that is a huge amount of radiation, so I think that's that's the concern. Like you see, you know, and, and the younger the patient is, the more the more time that radiation has to grow into something bad. Like if they're seventy five years old, uh, give, <laughs> give them a nuclear yeah, give them a nuclear just stress finally. test every year. Sure. Yeah, In
7: forty, they end up with an extra appendage. <laughs> yeah, they've had their exposures. Just, just yeah. down.
0: Um, and I the caveat. Paul and I are both, uh, you know, we're, we're sleep deprived. Everyone actually, <laughs> the whole team is. We were out late last night, and yeah. our our uh, this sleep deprived lecture they told us i'm basically drunk right now so i can't be held responsible for anything i'm saying it's
7: outstanding that's good that's good you're doing great buddy let's go for a drive (laughs) and a drink um so um yeah so thank you for that the last kind of thing that i wanted to, to touch on is actually um there are some interesting strategies which i had never heard of to kind of mitigate the um radiation exposure in your patients um and so that actually uh would require you or your team to kind of have a a discussion with cardiology or the cardiology techs that are kind of running the show. But for both coronary CT and for um, the myocardial perfusion studies, there are certain things you can do. So the way in which the coronary CT is gated and the way the protocol is actually um, uh, kind of uh, run for that particular study – um, so, yeah, basically with the coronary CTs, the way that they're protocoled, uh, you can have kind of more or less exposure to radiation based on whether it's using like a predictive model um, in conjunction with the the, um, the heart rhythm that's kind of being monitored versus if it's kind of just recording. Um, so depending on on how that is set up, you can kind of be exposed to lesser uh, to more or less radiation. And then um, something super cool with the myocardial perfusion studies is typically when we do those, at least at my institution, we'll get rest imaging and then stress imaging and then rest imaging to kind of see if there's a reversible defect. Well, what Dr. Winchester said is that you can actually shave off time, cost and radiation exposure um, by just asking them to do the stress imaging first particularly in your patients that you're maybe not as convinced. Again, if you use that ASCBD trick and you kind of feel like they're low intermediate, but you're still getting the MPS for whatever reason, um, you know, you can ask them to do the stress imaging first. And if there's no abnormality during stress, then you don't need to do anything else.
0: I like it. Super cool. Saves the patient the radiation. Awesome, right. guys. Thanks. Thank you. Cyrus the Younger. Okay. Paul, Aaliyah, you got anything before we... Uh before we get to the wrap-up here?
2: Oh, can I do my, my NAFL fun fact? Yeah, please. I can't remember if we talked about it. I don't think we talked about this yesterday. But there's a great talk uh, on alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. And, you know, I still feel like we're kind of in limbo in terms of how to treat. But it's lifestyle modification primarily. So it's if it's diet, like just have them lose some weight. Easier said than done. We know this. Difficult to sustain. Um, but the thing that was kind of fun is – you can actually encourage them to do one thing positive, and that's actually drink coffee. So caffeinated drip coffee decreases the risk in progression of fibrosis. Uh, I don't think French press no. was checked. Um, okay. But tea does not work. Soda does not work. Decaf does not work. Keurig's probably okay. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. bad for the environment. Uh, well, sure. But it's, I mean, the world's on fire. It's going to be gone 20 years anyway, so go to town. Um, I have kids. <laughs> oh, so sorry. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's nice because there's so many things that we tell the patients that you cannot do. So stop drinking alcohol and please exercise and you can't eat salt and you can't eat this. So to be able to say one thing that you can do that's actually enjoyable, go ahead and drink some coffee. It's going to help you. I think it's a nice thing to tell patients. So I enjoyed that, Pearl.
1: Excellent. Can I go over the syncope or do you want to go in the wrap up? Uh, I want to hear about syncope. Syncope. Stuart, you built this up now. <laughs> uh, all of my ph- Oh, there we go. <laughs> So uh, a couple of clinical pearls from syncope that I thought were very useful. Um, so we've we talked about this before, that uh, in order to, to rule out syncope, rule in seizure, to look at the difference between two, we talked about lateral tongue biting being the most uh, specific marker for seizure, although it's not present in most, most cases of seizure. What was interesting, though, was that incontinence was not helpful in actually diagnosing syncope versus seizure because most patients with syncope have a history of incontinence. And so it didn't really help, right? <laughs> Good, good point. And then, so we, we went from that and actually talking about the PESIT trial that came out uh, a couple of years ago. We talked about this on our podcast, in, uh, I think like episode 32, 33, something like that, syncope update uh, trial. So, PESIT trial, uh, about a quarter of patients are admitted to the hospital with syncope. Of those patients who are admitted to the hospital, 17% of those patients had a pulmonary embolism. Right. In the United States, 80% of patients presenting the ED are admit, for, for syncope are admitted to the hospital. Of those patients in the United States who are admitted to the hospital, 1% of them have a diagnosed PE, mm-hmm. okay? Now, when you go back to the PESIT trial, two-thirds of those patients in the PESIT trial had a major pulmonary embolism that otherwise would have been diagnosed as a
0: pulmonary yeah. embolism, right? That's out of the 17% right. that were found to have right. PE. E- exactly.
1: exactly. So 2 were obvious. One-third of them were essentially incidental, mm-hmm. uh, either subsegmental or asymptomatic, those are the patients that were that were saying that hey if you're admitted to the hospital in the United States with syncope not admitted for pulmonary embolism we're finding 1% of them have a pulmonary embolism okay so we're over admitting and the, so, the, inc- the actual incidence for our over-admitted patient population actually levels out to what you should have seen in the PESA trial if you were to admit 80% of the patients who are admitted from the PESA trial. When you compare this to Canada, 13% of patients who come to the ED in Canada are admitted for syncope, okay? Of those patients, 2.5% had a pulmonary embolism. So, Obviously, um, we're probably over-admitting in the United States, number one. Number two, that when you level those out, it's not really significantly different. Um, and when you look at all the studies together, consider that after a structured workup, which includes, obviously, an EKG and an H&P prior to admission, up to about 3% may still have an undiagnosed PE. So you still need to be on lookout for it, but it's not necessarily something that, that was initially like the sky is falling for the PESA trial. Right. What, what I did find concerning, though what's the most common ECG finding for PE?
2: Normal sinus rhythm.
1: Yeah, normal sinus rhythm, right? So you're saying that the structured workup includes an EKG or ECG, and then the most common finding is normal sinus rhythm. Great, thanks. Um, so the recommendation, obviously, was to do a well-scoring D-dimer and then just use clinical decision-making from there. Okay, so when we're talking about the workup of syncope... <laughs> all right, you can probably cut this out, but... I, but we This is not this being edited, right? Normal neurologic examination, 0% yield for doing any kind of head imaging. So don't do it. For echocardiography, for all patients with syncope, 1% yield. Okay? So for all patients with syncope, if you've got an echocardiogram, it costs $100,000 to diagnose one cardiac etiology for syncope. Not worth it. Um, if you instead looked at patients with normal ECG, the yield was zero percent, which is kind of funny, right? But if you suspected that they had CAD, the yield was five ten percent. So the actual cost to diagnose one cardiac syncope was anywhere from thirty five thousand to hundred thousand dollars, depending on what the the actual clinical context was. What I found interesting though was that when you look at diagnostic yield for carotid sinus massage, especially in an elderly patient who had an unexplained history. Um, and had a suggestive history of cardiac disease, the diagnostic yield was 46% and actually found in etiology about half the time.
0: But do you remember when we talked about carotid sinus massage, you sequentially give firm pressure for like five seconds and it drops their systolic pressure by like 50 and, they're, yeah. and they may have bradycardia or pa- like 10 yeah. seconds of yeah. A- He's like, uh,
1: yeah I'll, I'll, seconds. He said you need to listen very closely for a brewery first. Yeah. So that's issue number one. And issue number two was check their vital signs first, obviously.
0: Yeah, you might want to do it in the ER. Probably. <laughs> Where probably. it's actually like an continuous ICU, monitoring. ICU yeah. level yeah. care, yeah. continuous monitoring.
1: And then, and then similarly, for patients that have recurrent syncope, tilt table test had a diagnostic yield of 49%, which actually makes me kind of upset. Those are very hard to get in my experience. Yeah, very, very hard. All right, last one. Canadian syncope risk, to, risk of score. Um, is what was recommended. If you've never used it before, it's actually a very simple tool, just a few questions. You can go into MedCalc and find it, M- MDCalc, and uh, assesses the 30-day risk and, and assists with clinical decision-making whether or not to admit or not. All right, that's all I have.
0: Any, f- any final pearls? We have, we have one more recap tomorrow, so we can, we can put some stuff in there. Aaliyah, anything? I'll give you the last word.
3: Can I just say smoking is bad?
0: Uh, I just like to say that just to add that in. Even if I'm like already dying from cancer, I should, I, I shouldn't just like no. keep going.
3: No, just don't do it. Okay. Even if you have cancer, even if you have, uh, you know, you are di- dying from cancer and you're getting some type of treatment, that treatment's not going to work. It's just not going to help you. It's not going to be better. Just don't do it.
0: Okay all right i you know i always whenever i think of that kind of thing i think uh this is a, a some a, many of our listeners won't get this if they're younger than me but the uh grumpy old men movie burgess meredith is like his character eats a pound of bacon every day and smokes chain smokes cigarettes and he like dies on a park bench like overlooking a lake at like age 100 and i'm like i'm just like that's that's great good for this <laughs> This has been another episode of The Curbsiders.
2: Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> yes, I'm all thrown off. Get your show yeah, notes too. at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Then sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. There will be no show notes for this episode. And that's
1: that's right. We're committed to providing you practice changing and high volume.
0: Uh, <laughs> Hold on. Stewart's having a TIA. <laughs> You guys are all uh, sleep deprived. It's okay. Yeah,
1: that's right. We're committed to providing you high value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or contact Matt personally at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. He will send you a reply at his leisure.
0: A, a special thanks to our, our, our uh, videographer for this episode, Dr. Christopher Chu, and then to our whole team of correspondents who you've heard on air, and to our wonderful guest, Dr. Aaliyah Chisti. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs
1: Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chu Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I'm tired
0: and uh Ed cyrus asking pinch hitting on twitter for this conference at acp thank you cyrus uh i've been dr matthew frank Wado. alia chisti
2: <laughs> strong <laughs> and you. i remain dr paul nelson williams thank you and goodbye good night paul